Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 86 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Well, um, I'm Mike Levy from Triumph, and right now I'm talking to Mitch. I love to hear that. So, Mike, I told you I, I wanted to share with you my first experience or exposure to the band, uh, but I wanted it to come live and be in person. Um, 1985, April 3rd, Montreal Forum, Thunder 7 Tour, was the first arena tour show I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> you got lucky. That was a good show. It was a great show. And Helix opened, another wow. famed Canadian rock band. And I got exposed to the band first through my older brother in 1983 from the Us Festival, which I'm sure is a story you've heard more often. But that led me on a crazy journey, not just to become a fan of Triumph and music, but I became a music journalist and published magazines. And we have a lot of mutual friends in that world. And I don't think you and I ever had a chance to connect over those later years, but I had a chance to sit down with Rick a couple of times and maybe Gil here and there. But when I built this bass podcast, I thought one day, one day I'm going to speak to the guy <laughs> who I saw at my first arena show ever. And that was an incredible show for Thunder 7. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very cool. It didn't get much better than that. That was so much fun to play that show because there's all the crap going on around you and it's like you go oh yeah oh, I'm gonna play now because it's just neat stuff always happening yeah I remember sure. the lasers at the beginning that intro the show with the voice I mean the production that the band put into these live shows you think about it now in relation to what we see and you almost take it for granted but there was something I mean you spent a lot of time making sure it wasn't just about the music which could stand on its own Talk a bit. I mean, I'd love to hear just your thoughts on how that evolution to this big arena rock with real production came to be. Well, you know, right from the outset of the band, the concept was to have a big show. So when we played bars, we had way more gear than anybody else ever had. Uh, When we played high schools, we'd blow off flash pots and Bird, bird holes in their carpeting. <laughs> and uh, each other, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and each other. Uh, but, you know, the idea was, obviously, like, music is music, and it's great. And you want to listen, sit down, listen with your headphones on, listen to music, listen to a recording. Fabulous. You know, it takes you on your own personal trip. But uh, a live show is like theater. So it needs to have production. So we use the best of the, what I'll call the tricks, that you could learn from either other bands or from a Broadway show or from Vegas or from wherever it might be. You go, wow, that is really cool. How could we use that? And how could we use it to enhance the music? And that's, you know, we never, like right now, pyro is so passe. It's like people blow it off in the broad daylight. And it's like just bull. You know, it doesn't really work. If you remember the Triumph show, stage would always go black before pyro went yeah. off. It'd be totally dark. You know why? Because your pupils would get really big when it gets dark. And when the pyro went off, it had a huge effect. You'd see double, triple, whatever. So it's a reason for it. And uh, so we just believe the production was the best way to put on a show and the fans would really appreciate it. 
I think I have uh, like pyro PTSD from those shows. Like even now I, I get a bit of the jumps when they go off. I blame Triumph. <laughs> Used to scare the hell out of me too, believe me. I mean, it was also re- like people don't realize that the pyros changed a lot since those days. It was really loud back then. It's, I mean, it can be like that now if they, if they want it to be, but they can do it without the loudness now. Yeah, and it's, they don't use flash powder anymore, right? It's all electronic right. stuff, right? So it's not, it can't burn, well, it could, I guess, if something gets, goes wrong, but it can't burn a place down, it can't, can't start a fire. Uh, when we were doing the documentary, we used some pyro when we played at the, in the warehouse, and it's like, I'm going, wow, this is really cool because, like, the sparkler could go on forever. It doesn't <laughs> burn out. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's impressive when Kiss does it still. I mean, they use a lot of pyro, and it's super impressive still, for sure. The band formed in um, 1974, which is absurd to me in terms of timing because the music seems so fresh and relevant now. And it came out of another band that you and Gilmore, the drummer, were in, where you found Rick Emmett, singer, guitarist. And I'm wondering, before that, you were very musical, and you had been playing for a while on your own. When did you first discover the electric bass? Um, it discovered me. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, in high school, and there was about five, six, seven of us started a group. It may be grade nine or grade ten. I can't remember exactly, but we were 14, 15 years old. We thought this is the best way in the world to get girls. So, you know, <laughs> we played the high school assembly and everybody was yelling and screaming like we were the Beatles, you know, <laughs> which we weren't. We were horrible. But uh, uh, we had to dare. There was like uh, a drummer, Barry Keane, who plays with Gordon Lightfoot and has for years. Uh, uh, one, two, three, four, four guitar players, including myself and a piano player. <laughs> so we had to narrow it down into a band size eventually. So we needed one or two guitar players uh, and the piano player and the quote now organ and uh, drums. So everybody looked at me and said, well, Mike, your dad plays bass. So you're now the bass player. Off wow. you go to the music store. <laughs> and that's how I became a bass player. Was your dad playing stand-up, though, at that point? Or was he playing electric? No, stand-up. He was in the Toronto Symphony. Uh, also, he was a number one called jazz bass player in the city. So when Red, Red Norvo or uh, you know any trio-type guys would come to town, my dad would be the first call bass player if he was available. So I work with those guys. So you, you, when did your dad pass? Oh, geez. We're talking ooh, 10 years ago now, I guess. So he was able to see the magic that happened. Yeah, yeah. He was. He had some great stories because <laughs> he always asked me, what is it that you do anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so what's that like to go home when your dad is this recognized jazz cat and, and, and player in general? And you're like, well they picked me for the bass too. Was he like obvious or was he like, no way? Like, you don't know how hard this is. Um, I don't even recall discussing it with him. (laughs) (laughs) No choice. (laughs) It was like, that was, that was it. I think I had to borrow some money to buy an an app and a bass uh, from him. 
which he gladly gave me, <laughs> and said, you know, don't spend it all in one place. What's a, what's an electric base anyway? I don't even know what that is, Mike. You know? Wow. <laughs> so where did you buy? This is in Toronto. Where did you like? What were, were, was the base readily available? Because I mean, at that point, you know, base was coming into its own, but it wasn't like it is now. I mean, they, they weren't as easy to find. Yeah, there weren't. There wasn't a lot of rock bands either. You know, and, and the bigger rock bands that were kind of known, like Richie Knight and the Midnights and the Lincoln Airs and Sean and Jay and the Majestics. Those guys were all. They were my idols, right? I go see them. They were older, and I was a kid. <laughs> but uh, they all had electric basses. All, all the guys they played Fenders, you know, or Rickenbackers. I think um, was it. But I couldn't afford any of those. Uh, so I went to the Hut House of Music at Ward and Lords in Toronto, and uh, uh, Barry Hutt was a keyboard player who I knew. Just dad had the, the the store, and I used to teach guitar lessons there. So that was my first kind of music job. You know, I had a class of ten kids playing really the worst guitars. I couldn't even hold down a bar chord. The guitar, the action was about four inches off the like those the those old plastic guitars or whatever they were, right? Yeah. Oh, the poor kids, and I was not the best teacher either. But uh, anyway, so I bought I bought a, a Paul amp and a Harmony bass. Wow. And yeah. immediately, were you treating it like a guitar? Were you seeing as the instrument differently? How did you see it as an instrument? Well, I went, you know, this is a hell of a lot easier to play than a guitar. There's only, <laughs> four, only four strings to think about. So, um, I, it, was, it was an interesting transition, you know, because, you know, I was not a great guitar player either at that point. None of us were really fine musicians. Uh, I was a classically trained p piano player at that point, but I had given that up for baseball. And uh, uh, so it was a f it was just a fun thing. It was a gaffe, right? It was uh, we weren't ser really serious about it till maybe a little later. By the time we got to grade 12, we we, you know, pared the band down a little bit and uh, got a, a real a singer that could sing instead of me and the guitar player singing. And, Got to play downtown in Yorkville in the village in the sure. early days, you know. Um, I think the band then was called the Howling Masses or something like that. <laughs> to play at Charlie Brown's and all these, all these cool clubs that we'd, we'd go to to see other bands play. Uh, so, yeah, that's how, the, the, like I say, the bass found me. It wasn't that I was, wow, do I ever want to be a bass player? It was just I had no choice. And, and at what point did you realize being a professional musician or at least playing music was going to be the thing? Because at that point, you're committed to the instrument. So you're going down the road. You know, I'm, I'm going to assume it's like similar artists who I speak to from that time where just being the bass player alone gives you a bit of cachet. People need bass players. What point were you like, you know what, this is actually really serious and this is what I'm committed to? Um, I never took anything that seriously, to be honest with you. <laughs> Still don't. <laughs> If you take anything too seriously, it's like, you know, you get the, the disappointments are too great. You know, the highs aren't high enough and the lows are so extremely low. You don't want to go there. So I never took myself seriously. I never took the instrument seriously. I took being in a band seriously, being part of a band uh, and, and working within the confines of what made the band work. And uh, that's the one thing my dad taught me. We had we had one lesson. Uh, that didn't work out very well. <laughs> <laughs> Your fault uh, or his? <laughs> oh, I was a combo, you know. <laughs> I did, I was not cut out to play the stand-up bass. 
Right. And he wanted to teach me how to play. He thought it would be a good add-on for me at some point in my life. I could be a gigging musician and go play weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that. Um, so I respected him for that. The lesson did not go well. Honestly, mm. did he ever try? Did he ever try playing electric bass at any point? Yes, yeah. I took him to Long and McQuaid in the city here to bought it, went to Bob Abbott, my favorite salesman, and uh, Bob cut him a deal on a Fender Precision okay. and a trader and a trader amp. And I still have the Precision. Uh, what year is that? Do you know? Uh, it was about it was a seventy-two or oh, three. That's, a, that's a good year to have a P bass. Yeah, and. Uh, the, the one thing he taught me, the, the best lesson he ever taught me was, Mike, you're a bass player. You know, it's not what you play, it's what you don't play that mm. matters. And I took that to heart. And I went, he says, you have to leave space. You are not a lead instrument. You know, now, of course, guys like Jacob Pistorius yeah, and, sure. and, and Getty and uh, uh, Billy Sheehan and those guys. They're yeah, and Mark like, King. I mean, there are countless people who came along and even I'd say Graham maybe from Joe Jackson, like really came along and, and made songs lead by the bass. Even if the line wasn't crazy, it, it was that. Did that impact you? Did you think about that? Like, OK, I used to be like that, but now maybe things have to change. Well, you know, I, eventually with Triumph, for example, you know, there's a three-piece band and, and the space was really important, the air around what was being played. Uh, we, don't, we were not like Rush, you know, we were not like uh, Mr. Big. We were, you know, I love Billy Sheehan. He was my favorite bass player. Right. And Billy used to come, <laughs> I used to go see him play. What was the band he played at? God, Talis. Talis. Right? Yeah. So they play in Toronto and I go see them all the time. I sit with Billy and have some drinks after, and he go, I go, he says, I was a show. I said, Billy, it was fucking amazing. You know, you are you are the god, you know? And he goes, oh, stop. He said, you're my favorite bass player, Mikey. You know, it's like, though, I love the way you play because you're not like me. And, you know, so it was, it's a really interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, that, I was curious as you were talking like that, because you roll into Triumph, and there are certain components that are happening, especially when Rick is moving into solos where it does maybe doesn't require space. It needs some filling out. And there was some things you would do. And I'm wondering if that was effect base or more chordal base. I'm wondering if you were thinking also, you know, later in the later years, the keyboards came to be much more prevalent, which was something you were occupying. Did you approach it differently as a trio? Because again, as much as you want to leave space, there's got to be some filler too. Otherwise the song can lose out. Uh, yeah, you're you're right about that. When when there was solo time, which we had a lot of solo yeah. time because we wanted to show Rick off. Uh, uh, yeah, there I had to I had to get busier for sure. And but it was cool because we had, you know, we could do whatever. Once we broke into solo time, it was like okay, we don't have to be like the record. We don't have to be like the song. It's like let's just blow, yeah. and eventually we'll find one again, and there'll be a drummer. All we'll come back into the song, and. Uh, so it was fun. Those were the fun times because I would mosey over to Rick and play a funny line, and he'd look at me and go, "Wow, that's cool." Then he'd play it back, and away we go on a different tangent. Yeah. So, or he'd do the same thing back with me. So those were the fun things on stage because we never did that in the studio. And so, would you think about songs differently in terms of the phrasing? So there's parts where you're clearly holding down a beat. And you're really connecting the groove. You're bringing the, the stuff together. And then there are moments where you know, Rick is going off or even, I think it's even complex when you have a drummer who sings because the level of complexity they're going to do in a, in a power trio has to 
you know, something's got to give. You can't be doing Neil Peart riffs when you're singing like Gill is singing. So do you, are you restructuring your, your bass lines by song and by where you have to be? Are you thinking about it? Like, what was your thought, creative thought process? Uh, are you talking about li- live application here? Yeah, well, I'm yes. curious yeah, live, yeah. but even even yeah. studio. I mean, the the la- you did a lot of layering in the studio too, which again creates like, what are we going to do live? Right. Well, that was the good. The good news for us is we never tried to reproduce the record. Yeah, we we would take the essence of the song and make that the the, the basis of the tune. But playing it like the record, a was impossible, and b it was it wasn't practical. Uh, for a live application, like I love going to watch the Eagles. They reproduce their records note, yeah. note vocal per, for vocal. Pretty unique like, situation. Yeah. It's like watching paint dry. I just like waiting for you know, give Joe Walsh a few minutes here to blow, please. You know, something. Um, uh, we, we never really did that. We just tried to capture the essence of the song. And of course, you have to follow it. The lyrics are the lyrics, and the verse is a verse. The chorus is a chorus, but then you can always expand on that. The arrangement can change. The guitar solo doesn't have to be identical. Uh, things like that. The drum rolls don't have to be the same. The bass line doesn't have to be the same. So um, uh, it, it's a long way to get to a short answer of your question. Uh, yeah, we had to make adjustments. Like, you know, if Gil, a song like Never Surrender, which is a very busy song, for example, right? And busy. a high singing register, too. Yeah, and you know, so you know, Rick, uh, you know, it's, Rick was amazing that he could play and sing that song. But it was fun for Gil and I to play because it was busy underneath. Yeah, you know, all the verses were like that. I mean, it had had lots of movement. And it was lots of little reggae, a little of this, a little of that. It was a fun song to play. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the early days where you know you and Gil are together. You you meet Rick. You decide to form this band. And I'm, I'm curious a little bit about, is there a, a, discuss, a discussion about this is going to be a trio? Is there a discussion about what that's going to be like? Or was it just, it could only work with the three of you? Uh, well, Gil and I were in a band. Um, it, was like, it was a part-time weekend high school band. That was his band. I was just filling in for a while, which he he berated me into, into playing. <laughs> I, I, I was perfectly comfortable. I was doing j- writing and producing jingles, making, making a good buck. And he called me. He says, look, I know you don't want to play, but it's like I'm just in between bass players. Oh, you know, I got another guy coming in like two weeks. Can you just fill in? I went, no, bye. You know? So eventually he talked me into it. And uh, <clears throat> it was kind of fun, but it, was, it wasn't going to go anywhere. And I had to, I had to leave the jingle business because uh, as bad as the rock business was, uh, or is still probably, <laughs> became uh, the, the, the drugs and the alcohol were so prevalent in that, in that in the advertising business, it was crazy. You know, it's like you do a session at nine in the morning, you do a, a, a commercial for Molson Canadian beer, have a 30-piece band in the studio, it'd be finished by 10.30, and the ad agency says, clients say, oh, let's go to lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and the drinking would start. That's and a madman, yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. So I had to, I had to quit. Yeah, and, and so you, you're with Gil, you, you do this trio. What is that conversation like? Are you like, we're a trio, we're actually going for this, we're looking for a record deal now, we're taking it more seriously. I mean, I know you've been talking about it just being fun always, but you, when I think back on those first albums and I hear them, um, 
fun for sure, but it sounds like you were taking it really seriously, actually. I mean, the music was pretty intense. Well, yeah, that's when everything got serious. Like Gil and I sat down and said, okay, we can't go anywhere with the band we have, that we have. So, uh, like, you know, we drink and get wrecked and go, okay, what would be the perfect band? Three pieces, three egos to deal with, a lot easier than six guys. It's like, you know, it's the ultimate democracy, two out of three wins a vote, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so then we went about, well, what kind of music do we want to play? Well, we want to play hard rock. It's got to be like Hendrix and Zeppelin and uh, we picked Deep Purple. We played those songs in our sets uh, after Rick joined. So then we had to find a guitar player. Uh, before we had Rick, <coughs> I went and got us a record deal with Attic Records. We didn't have a band. It was just me and Gil. And, Good old uh, Al Mayer. Yeah, well, it was Tom Williams, actually. Right, it was Scott. You're right. Yeah, right. Al came in later, for sure, of course, yeah. yeah. Well, they were partners, but yeah. you know, Al, Al and I never got along, but Tom and I were good buddies. <laughs> Al and I got along really good back then, so there, we have, we have a difference, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they, they wrote us a check, and uh, so we started the process of being a band. You know, we had started, we didn't have a guitar player yet, so we, what were we going to call it? Oh, let's call it Hellfire. What the heck? You know, we're going to have Pyro. That was part of our plan. So we had this poster made, you know, with smoke going off and a devil's head and all that. Ah, um, <laughs> <Not> the 70s. <laughs> uh, it was crazy. And then somebody said, you guys got to go check out Rick Evan. Plays at a band called Act Three. It's, they're playing at the Queensbury Arms, I think it was, uh, this weekend. So Gil and I went and checked them out, and we just kind of went, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, the kid can play, he can sing, he's great straight on stage. Uh, they were playing Yes, a Gentle Giant, Early Queen, and stuff like that. And I, Gil looks at me, he says, man, he's pretty good, huh? And I said, you don't have no idea how good he is. Yeah. You're just you're just a drummer, man. You don't know. I, he said, yeah, but can he play a whole lot of love? I said, if he can play this shit, he can play a whole lot of love. I, don't worry yourself about that. Amazing. So we talked to him and talked him into joining us and... Uh, and we started rehearsing and woodshedding and came up with whatever ideas we had, which was, uh, you know, play, play four sets. In clubs, you had to play three sets. We said, we're going to do four sets. <laughs> mm. So, so we did, but, you know, nobody's ever heard of the band. So what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to win fans over? Well, let's do a set of Led Zeppelin. You know, 30 minutes long, start and finish, no breaks in between. Segue in between each song. Started off with some pyro, ended with some pyro, and see what happens. And place to go apeshit. Yeah, well, what's <laughs> you know? crazy now is, is, is that's kind of a commonplace thing, but you think back to the mid-70s, and nobody was really doing that. I mean, you, you, you could make a fortune now just being a Led Zeppelin tribute band in this day and age, yeah. but yeah. You know, it's amazing to think that you'd play these four sets, and I guess part of it was just the work ethic. You were trying to outwork everybody else, weren't you? Well, yeah, there was that, and out-showmanship out them, and out-equipment them, and, and show that we had something special. So after the Zeppelin set, we'd do a Hendrix set, same idea, start to finish, no breaks. Uh, next set was Deep Purple, start to finish, no breaks. So, so you never give a chance to, you know, the attitude was never give the audience a chance to throw an apple at you or a piece of rotten fruit because they didn't like you or something. Right. Make sure, don't, don't give them a chance to say, oh, they suck. Make sure they all say you're great. And the last, the last set, we did some a Doobie Brothers song and a Joe Walsh song and a, a couple of originals we had written 
by that time they didn't care what we played. They just loved that. They loved the band. So that's how that's how we started it out. I was just watching some videos on YouTube of uh, the 50th anniversary of this Doobie Brothers tour that they're doing, and it's um it, yeah I'm I mean I'm 50, so it's kind of it just blows me away to think about one is how how impressionable that music was in my early teens, but to just hear them playing now, they sound really good. And there's a lot of other musicians on stage there, but they're sounding really good. Yeah, I love. I always love the Doobies. You know, I yeah. saw them the first time they were opening for Peter Gabriel. Oh wow! At Massey Hall in Toronto, and and, and they Gabriel got booed off the stage. Would that have been what? That would have been what? Like Salisbury Hill time for Gabriel? No, it must oh, have been earlier than that. Earlier, early. I'm sorry. No, Gabriel was opening for the Doobies. Like, sorry, okay, yeah, that makes more. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he didn't last much more than. He's out there climbing over the speakers and running around the audience, and people are throwing shit at him. It was really, it was horrible. I was embarrassed. Well, Canada, but, it's, it was always interesting, Canada, because we would be the place normally where the bands would start the tours because they get the kinks out and then go to the bigger markets. People don't know that, but that's the way tours used to work. I don't think bands were doing three, four months of pre-production on arena settings and stuff back then. Um, and I think that that led Canada to having some really unique shows over time. <laughs> Sure did, but don't forget, like a lot of a lot of the more progressive bands broke out of Canada. Absolutely, especially in Quebec. Yeah, in Quebec, it started out as Super Tramp, uh, Gentle Giant, yep. uh, Strawberries. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, uh, you know, they were outselling America. You know, at one point, and then they moved. The record companies were smart enough because they were making a ton of dough. They were transshipping records across the border into the states. And all of a sudden, the America had to wake up and go, oh, Jesus, this band is selling a ton of records. We better start promoting them. Yeah, I remember when, when, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but I remember when the band disbanded, when Rick decided to go off on his own or whatever the situation was. And it was you know, so heartbreaking for me, not because Triumph is one of my favorite bands in Canada, but Triumph was always one of my favorite bands, hands down. I mean, I, when people ask me, it's like The Who and Triumph like, are the first things that will tumble out of my mouth. And then I look at the discography, just thinking about this conversation, Mike, and I, I'm not going to rattle through it. I wrote it down, but I, I want to rattle through the years. Album in 76, 77, 79, 80, 81, 82, 84, 86, 87, then 92. And then, I mean, you could argue even 85, which is when Stages of the Live album came out. That was quite a production to get across that finish line because I remember at that point I was really into the band. And I, I kind of look at that pr- that release schedule and the titles and the songs. And I'm, I'm actually surprised you lasted that long. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I mean, it's really crazy because it's heartbreaking, but at the same time, this is an insane schedule with an insane body of work that goes from 76 to, I mean, essentially I would say closer to 87. I mean, you know, you had Phil X come in for edge of excess and it was a couple years in between. So if you even just go to 87, it seems like an untenable, unreasonable schedule do you have any memory of it or is it complete blur? Blur because it sounds crazy. I mean, you were touring in between that. I, I remember so much. I mean, obviously, uh, if my memory is tweaked, uh, you know, I, I remember the records because I produced them. Right. Uh, right. I was the guy that had to get on the plate at the last minute with the master tapes and go see Bob Ludwig in New York to get a master. Yeah. Mastered, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was the guy that had to go in the record company and get money for the band, for for touring or for marketing. I was the guy that had to uh, promote, uh, got to know every radio guy in America. Uh, 
Uh, not to say the other guys didn't do equally as much stuff, but you know, I'll still, you know, plan the tours. He worked with the agents, took care of the money, took care of the production. Rick got to stay at home and write songs. You know, right. it was all everybody did something that was of value. So, uh, you know, we were talking the other day. We were talking actually last night. We we're on a, a call about uh, a show in in, in Texas. And uh, it was, you know, on South Padre Island for Budweiser, you know, during spring break. And uh, there's a guy on the call that had worked that show he from Texas, and he was actually a working guy on the show. And I said, yeah, that was 1988. And he said, bingo, man, you remembered. I said, wow. yeah, of course I remembered. But uh, it was... Uh, it was a unique experience. I remember going. The guy that owned the bud, the bud distributorship for for Texas, it went back to his house after along with Augie Bush, who was the guy. He came to the show. We were hanging out and talking beer and music and how much money there was in the beer business. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, you can't not. I mean, if I reflect as a fan on albums like Just a Game and Progression of Power and Allied Forces and Never Surrender and Thunder. I can reflect on it and be like, this is an unbelievable body of work. You're the one creating it, artwork, touring, back and forth. How was it in terms of what was your, I mean, did you have a life? It seems like how could you even have a life when this is going on? It's, it's funny. You know, we, we managed to, uh, you know, the, the touring part was the toughest part, obviously, you know, because you're, you're moving around and. Uh, you got to play, and you got to do radio, and you got to do advanced stuff, and you got to keep your chops together, all that. And, uh, but we didn't work that hard on purpose, you know. Mm. We, we we'd be uh, we never worked Mondays. I, we didn't like Mondays, <laughs> and we didn't work Tuesdays, and we didn't work. We worked very few Wednesdays. So when we flew commercial Monday morning, we'd be at the airport on a plane home, and we'd be in Toronto Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday leave either Wednesday night or Thursday morning and play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we took it economically. It was stupid. You know, it sounds like you were almost doing fly-ins before fly-ins existed. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it all costs us to keep the trucks out. It costs us to keep the road crew in, a, in, a, in hotels. And, uh, you know, you're paying seven days a week for everything, but we're only working four or four and a half, call it, uh, on purpose because we wanted to keep our families together. We wanted to be at home. Um, and we didn't want to kill ourselves by staying out on the road. Right. What I mean, I'm trying to think of in my brain, I would go like, what was the big break? Now I could easily just go 1983 us festival. I mean, it becomes completely commercialized, but I also recognize that that may not be true. And what I find interesting when I think about historically where Triumph is at, because I would say that I probably really became a fan around Never Surrender just because of my age. And then I worked backwards and then forwards with you guys. Do, do you look back and as there were multiple big breaks or do you still go something like the Us Festival probably was the big breakthrough moment or was it a song or single? Um, you know, every, you know, we always had a goal, right? So the goal was, okay, you know, uh, when we started and we made a record, okay, we want to hear this on the radio. Got to hear it on the radio. You went, wow. 
Uh, <laughs> what's next? Well, let's move the goalposts. We want to sell 10,000 albums. Well, when we got to 9,000, we said, that's still good. We want a gold record. This is 50,000. That's our goal. You have to, to remind f- people it was Canada, 50,000 gold okay. in Canada. wasn't half a million. <laughs> no, it wasn't America. But it's 50,000 was equivalent. You big know? number it's in Canada, a, yeah. A big number. Uh, so we, you know, we wanted to play Maple Leaf Garden. We wanted to play Bassey Hall. We wanted to do this. We wanted to do that. But as soon as we got close to that goal, we moved the goalposts. Because mm-hmm. once you achieve something, you went, hey, we did it. Then you go, oh, well, you know, I guess it's over. Life is finished. You know, once, once you got gold, you want platinum. Or oh. you should aim for platinum. Uh, if you didn't get it on that album, then you aim for it for on your next one. So, you know, we did 2,000 people at a club in Buffalo, but it held 2,300. Well, you want to sell it out twice next time. Uh, those kinds of things. And how do we do it? What's the best way to do it? You know, we need a record deal in America. How are we going to get that? Uh, you know, we had to put the record deal in America. You know, we wanted to play tours in America. Oh, we got to do that. You know, it's just, it was hard work. And believe me, believe this, bitch, it's a whole lot of luck, too. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm a big believer even in the success I've had. It's like there's a, you know, one is I can also look at the world we live in and, and understand my white privilege as well on top of that. But tremendous luck, too. I mean, there's a genetic lottery that happens. It's, you know, we're born in North America and Canada at a time where there's prosperity. I mean, there's so many aspects of it, too. And then it working. You know, three people getting together, creating music, and it just clicking like that. Because as you were saying, it was really hard work. I was literally writing down, was it easy? Because the way <laughs> you're telling the story, it almost sounds like, yeah, we just put an album out. Yeah, we just sold some albums. Yeah, we just got on radio. Back then, it it, it wasn't easy to build that network. It was really, you know, it was hand in the dirt type of work. But it does seem, if you look at the career, that it it almost was easy. That you were there was so much talent and energy around it at the time that it was a propellant for that. Um, uh, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with you on that. Good. I think that, that <laughs> I th- uh, you know, you had to be there to know, like we forget, you know, it's, you spend your whole life being an overnight success and, and, and then you have to really go to work because you only got a year to, to follow it up. Uh, you know, we worked really hard. We slugged it out to make sure that if we got the opportunity, we could do it. We went on insanely stupid tours as a as a bar band up in northern Ontario where the agent said, well, you've got two months worth of gigs. We're great. Away we go. There was no gigs. Yeah. <laughs> like not one. There was a, right? a, a van and, and, a, and a prayer. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to find our own, our own gigs up there. So we got on the phone and we found was ourselves. We phoned colleges and bars and said, hi, we're here. There were a band called Triumph. You need us to play at your place. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, we had to go through those, those machinations to know that, hey, I can't take this anymore. This is a nightmare. This is a disaster. It's too cold. It's snowy. I can't push the truck out of the snow anymore. All that. We went through all that to find out that we had the balls to be able to move forward with whatever was in our way. Talk a bit about being Canadian, because if I think back to watching bands at that point, being Canadian was more of a stigma. It wasn't a benefit. It was hard to get if you had a deal in Canada, it was hard to get a bigger deal in the States. What we saw primarily, especially in the 80s, I think, is bands signing in the U.S. or getting management in the U.S. and then being distributed in Canada. If they were a Canadian band, that was the way to go. And we saw so many bands break, become massive in Canada that really, to this day, almost walk in a certain level of obscurity in the States, 
Triumph did something unique and it was breaking of a mold. To me, I still have the perception that back then being Canadian was a disadvantage, not an advantage. Uh, it was a disadvantage in your own country. It's, oh, uh, interesting. Uh, Canada was, you know, had a reputation for, you know, the media, radio, uh, had a reputation for eating its own. Mm. In other words, they looked at you. you have, if you're a Canadian, you were lousy. You didn't have a chance, you know. And if you went to America, that was even worse because you abandoned Canada. Exactly. So they shit on you <laughs> and said, ah, oh, they're not very good. They'll never make it. Then when you started to make it, they shit on you again and say, oh, look at what they did. They went to America. They didn't stay in Canada. Like, good for them. But, you know, you try covering shows if you're a journalist, music journalist, try try covering a show in Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, uh, uh, Winnipeg, Saskatoon. It's a big Virginia, country with a, not a lot in between. Yeah. And Vancouver. And you get in your car and you drive and cover those shows, right? And then you tell me that, that, that oh, you're abandoning in Canada. Well, you can't make a living in Canada. That's yeah. the biggest issue. Or you couldn't then, that's for sure. Yeah, it's such a unique thing to think about. Actually, now that you're saying it, it's so true that even I remember bands that were Canadian would go to the States and pretend that they weren't Canadian because <laughs> you'd want people down there to find that you're Canadian. You know, at the late 70s, it was very cool to be Canadian. Right, because, that's true. Yeah, Because in America, because, you know, by then you've got Rush, uh, Triumphs, coming, Triumphs on the scene, Hearts on the scene, uh, even though they were kind of American, but they're Absolutely. still Seattle. Canadian. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, you know, early 80s, Loverboy shows up. Uh, uh, I think it was 81, I'm going to say, that 64% of the album charts in America uh, that of, of, of was, was Canadian music. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. Talk a little bit about, um, so not, what happens is, is, Surveillance is the last album with Rick Emmett. That's 1987. Edge of Excess comes out in 92 with Phil X. People know Phil X now from Bon Jovi and some other stuff that he's been doing. He's a great guy, very fun guy. But the, not the word. Yeah, he's a real hoot. I mean, we go to Nam, it's always the Canadians. Um, so the, the band, Triumph disbands in 1993, and I'm wondering... What are you thinking? What are you What are you doing? And again, like here we sit, and it's not like there was another band that Mike Levine went to. What What happened in 1993, and and what have you been doing? I mean, have you been thinking about what you do? Um, I've did a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, after after Rick left, it was a matter of trying to clean up all the unfinished triumph business, which there was a lot of. Contracts, you mean contractually things that have to happen? Yeah, and, 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 and yeah, there's a lot of contractual stuff because you can't just walk away. So, oh well, you know, just walk away, and and go. Oh, too bad, too bad. MCA in Los Angeles. You know, we're not giving you the last record. Right. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you get lawyers' letters and that kind of thing. So there was some a lot of cleanup to do, and there was, uh, you know, I just went on the tack mode. You know, I started, you know, being being a, a jailhouse lawyer and reading contracts and finding little loopholes that they that weren't really loopholes. It was a reason for them not to give us money. So I found a whole whack of doll <laughs> <laughs> that was owed to the band. And I had support from people at the record companies that owed us the money. 
uh, you know, the back room people and that, that that helped out. They'd send me little notes saying, they called me, Dear Eagle Eye. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah, like a monocle, Mike? Did you have a monocle? <laughs> $320,000 if that's your money that you should go after wow. or whatever the number was. So I did that. That took like three or four years to, to clean everything up. Uh, then, of course, we had uh, a reversion clause in our contract that after a certain amount of time, all the masters uh, reverted to us. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. We're the first act. Our lawyers called it the triumph clause. That's great. I'd like <laughs> yeah. that. Law. Yeah. Why not? Because uh, we got that in 84, I'm going to say. Yeah, 84, we got that built into our contract. And uh, so I had to send the letter saying uh, to MCA, you know, dear Mr. Business Affairs, please arrange to ship back all the master tapes, all the artwork, all the master tapes, the pressers, the stampers, the, you name it, anything with the name Triumph on it. And I went back. And uh, the letters started flying around. Oh, you can't, we want to keep the band. What can we do? No, sorry, forget it. And we want everything back. So then we started a record label on our own. Right. So we reissued all the stuff properly, made it you know, first class because MCA schlocked everything. Uh, so that existed for until three years ago. That was a great uh, but, CD set. I remember getting the collection. It was great. Yeah. So it's, you know, we sold, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, thousands, hundreds of thousands of units. It was, it was a good, it was a good follow up to the band. But that was my baby. I kind of managed that whole process and made sure, you know, MCA or Universal distributed in Canada and <laughs> Warner Company distributed in America and we exported to Europe. So it was like, it was like good business. But didn't, you didn't want to play? You didn't want to get out there and... Yeah, you know, playing had lost its luster, oh. really. You know, it was... Uh, playing with Rick and Gil, you know, it couldn't get much better than that. Uh, and uh, for me to go, you know, play at a bar and play Stormy Monday, you know, was not really my idea of a good time anymore. I had been there, seen it, done it. Your dad didn't not want to tag it. team on some gigs with you. Is that what you're saying, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> a funny story about my dad. The Levine duo. You didn't see that coming? <laughs> Spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah, yeah. There's a big demand for for. Uh, Double bass and electric bass duo. There isn't this out, but yeah, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so when you asked me earlier, like it's your dad, what did he think of what you did? You know, and so the symphony played uh, in the summertime. The Charles Symphony played at Ontario Place. They yeah, did I don't know, ten or twelve, fourteen gigs there, right? At the uh, there the theater in the round, the stage, the turn, and so we're playing Ontario Place. Mm. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, my dad used to tell me how, how hard it was because, you know, the parking lot was like a mile and a half from the stage. You had to lug his base, <laughs> right. you know, a mile and a half of that. So I figured, well, I got to do something. So I talked my folks into coming and I sent, I sent a limo for them. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it drove them right into backstage. My dad gets out. He goes, I get what you do now. <laughs> he's like trying to milk I, you to get this for his gigs now. He's like, he's spoiled. I didn't have to lug my base or walk anywhere. I could just be right here. I understand now. <laughs> Amazing. And yeah. so you said that you it had lost its luster. Did it did it come back? I mean, there there is stuff that obviously happened. I mean, the story continues where the band reunited. I'm using the word 2008 Sweden Rock Festival. There's Rocklahoma. Yeah. 
recently, um, and I wish I'd been there, the Metalworks did a, a fan event. Um, there's been the Allied Forces 40th anniversary, and now there's this documentary called Triumph Laid on the Line. You're, there, there is more playing again. I'm curious yeah. what that, what getting back to it means to you and how it feels and how you think about things like shows and playing live. I'm not looking for a tour, but wondering if one-off shows seem reasonable. Um, so uh, what we decided for, for the fan event was really for the film. That was the whole idea. So good. Them. Brilliant. That was Banger, Banger Films. God yep. bless them. They're, they're brilliant film company. Yeah, they're the ones who did uh, uh, the Iron Maiden one. They did Rush. They've done a whole bunch of great ZZ Top. Yeah. Alice Cooper. Just killer, uh, killer docs. Yeah. My buddy Martin Poffoff works there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Martin does a lot of work with them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, there, the deal was that they could, you know, figure out, get 150 fans, however they were going to do it. Uh, you know, that we're going to come and experience this whole, they set up a museum of artifacts. They uh, set up uh, just, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. It was like autograph sessions and meet and greets. It, yeah, it was great. It was, yeah, was going to be a meet and greet and all that. But there was never any promise of performance, so to speak. So Rick and Gil and I are sitting around going, you know, there's like, these guys are putting a lot of work into this. And there's 150 of our, our top fans are coming. Maybe we should play. Mm. So, ah, maybe we should. No, oh, maybe we should. Ah, oh, maybe we should. Well, why don't we just get together and rehearse and see? So <laughs> we got together in the studio and hacked around. It was really bad hacking. But uh, maybe we shouldn't play. Well, let's give it a few more shots. You know, got better and got better and got better and got better. And after, you know, five or six rehearsals, we were okay. Well, how many songs can we play? Three tops. That's it. You know, we're old. We're frail. We're fragile. But this is coming after two thousand eight when you were doing full sets. I mean, you had done some of these yeah. reunions that were full sets. Yeah, but don't forget, this was two thousand nineteen. That was eleven yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, time doesn't become your friend as we get older. Yeah, uh, when, you, when, when you're fifty nine and then you're seventy, there's a big difference. Yeah, there's a gap. And yeah, you, and you'll get there. Yeah, well, I feel it. <laughs> yeah, we all get there, but. uh not to say that anybody was 70 right th at that point, but awful close to it. Yeah. Um, so it was like, okay, we, we woodshed and woodshed and woodshed and worked hard. And we got pretty good, you know. Did, didn't quite get to the energy level that we used to have, but uh, it was pretty good. So we felt comfortable playing. And it was a surprise. And it was a surprise right until the downbeat of the first song. Nobody knew. It was, I'm uh, really glad we did it. Oh, you know, it, nice. it worked out great. You'll see it in the film, which really doesn't show the hard, what's the word, the absolute glee of the fans when the curtain dropped and we were playing. You know, it there's was nothing just, like that energy, right? I mean, there's something that happens live. There's, there's a band that's playing, there's an audience, and then there's something in between. Yeah. And I can tell you as someone who's been friends with a lot of the, the bigger bands, I would often go on tour or hang out. And even more recently, there was a, a very famous band and uh, went backstage after they were really upset. And I was like, well, what's, you know, I thought it was like one of the best shows they'd played on the tour, but it, it showed to me, it really reinforced this idea that the band may not even be think they're doing that great, but the room is doing great and the audience is doing great. And there's so many different conversations happening live. And I can just imagine at a fan event like that with 150 people where the band's going to play. I mean, that's, that becomes something else. It was, it was, it was like really cool. There was like, it just blew their minds. You know, they had no idea it was going to happen. It was just, but they were watching a trailer from the film on a, on a, on a Kabuki screen. Right. 
sitting down, you know, and it's like in the warehouse, and we're standing behind the screen. You can't see through it, and we're ready to go. And as soon as the the, the trailer ended, um, the screen drops, and we're playing. The downbeat hits, and so pyro goes off, and the, the chairs went flying, and people rushed the stage. It was just like we looked at each other like, holy shit, man, this is unreal. But it was fun. That's amazing. And so t- tell me a bit about this, this Banger Films album, uh, film. It's called Lay It on the Line. Uh, change it, of name. Change of name. It's okay. called Rock and, Rock and Roll Machine. Fine. Triumph, just as great. Rock and Roll Machine. I'm good with that. Yeah. Uh, Tiff did a premiere of it recently, the Toronto International Film Festival. Yep. I know that there was some conversation about COVID holding it for a bit. Do, do we know when this is actually going to hit? We don't know. It, it just played this past weekend. Was uh, got invited to play at the Philadelphia International Film Festival, okay. which they did a drive-in and a theater play. Um, and then uh, it's it's a question of time, you know. Like TIFF was like out of the blue. We didn't expect it, yeah. right? It, it, you know, Banger put it in for consideration, and uh, all of a sudden it's in TIFF. And there was no marketing plan. There was no agent hired to sell it. There was no anything. It's just there. And uh, so now that process is beginning. So in the new year, I, you know, I think Crave actually is going to run it. Maybe, maybe mid-December is going to start on Crave. Maybe. Oh, cool. Yeah. For those who don't know, I, I, Crave is the streaming service up here in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, right. So we're trying to move them to January. But, you know, it's, it's Bell Media and they really don't care what a band has to say. You know, you you said it yourself, Mike. You're, you know, you're a lot of the guys in the band are in their 70s, young 70s, mid 70s. Um, no, we're not. No. No, I'm the oldest. I just I'm only seventy two. Okay. Well you're, you're Rick's not seventy. Okay, so you're in your young you're in your young seventies, Mike. You're I, young I, 70s. I got wild, I'm free. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah, got the magic power. I'll do the quotes if you want to do lyrics. Just if you want to test me whether or not I'm a fan, like we could do this. Well, I'll throw down with you, Mike. Don't worry. Um I'm I'm really curious about what it's like to see a documentary like that, to think back to, you know, what is coming up to, to fifty years on this band what's that like as a musician as a rocker as a so what's it like for you to reflect on it uh it's really cool it's just too bad you know you can only the movie can only be so long because there's so much great stuff that's not in it right but uh you know what i love about this film uh, and i call it a film rather than documentary because it has it has a storyline. It's not just about a band that goes out, you know, has some success, plays some shows, gets drunk, uh, you know, gets arrested, does whatever, and has other people talking about the band, giving quotes all the time uh, over over film or whatever. It's, this is like a story, and uh, to me, it's like it, it'll make you laugh, it'll make you cry, uh, it'll make you want to punch someone in the head. It's it's got it's got all kinds of really good things going on within it. So uh, our only deal with Banger was that you know please try and make this so somebody that never heard of Triumph and it doesn't even care about rock music would go see this film and go that's a great film mm. and enjoy it. That's kind of where we left it with them, and I think they they accomplished that. Yeah, I can't wait still, to see it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really cool. Like I I I can't believe how good it is personally. Like oh. usually, you know, I'm I'm the first guy to go sour grapes. Is there stuff in it I don't really like for sure? 
but there's so much more great stuff. It's good. The story's great, and it's, it affects me. Yeah, and it's as a, well. It's a story that's time is due. There's no doubt. The last last thing I'm curious just about is record store days become huge. Records in general, vinyl has been going crazy. It's outselling CDs at this point. There's a a real vibe for it. Um, Triumph were the ambassadors, I believe in Canada at least, for Record Store Day, maybe expanded beyond, but they were Canadian ambassadors. And 81 would have been Allied Forces 40 years. But again, I alluded to this earlier, Never Surrender would be 82, Thunder 7 would be 84, Sport of Kings would be 86. Is this setting pace to do 40th anniversaries for these massive albums? The band only got bigger and bigger at that point. Or is it was this a one-off thing and who can even think about that type of work? Um, I can't believe the amount of work that went into that box set. It's huge. Yeah, it's crazy box. If, if you haven't seen, I mean, people haven't seen it. It's an incredible thing to see. Yeah, it's really, really nice, beautifully done. I thought Andy Curran. I don't know. You must know Andy. Sure. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, yeah Andy Coney Hatch, and then he was actually yeah. at SRO Management with with yeah. Rush and Van Halen. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Andy put the whole thing together. He got hired to coordinate everything. And it did an absolute, you know, he's a guy that got dirty. He's a guy that crawled up in the attic at Metalworks and found stuff and came down mm -hmm. covered in filth and dust and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he did an absolutely incredible job. He just sent me an email or something. He says, have a look at this, see what you think. You know, and I go, I don't like it. I think it could be better this way or do it this way or whatever. He goes, cool, I'll go back to the drawing board. And he had, you know, two to three different artists working on it and doing different things. It was a massive amount of work. Sadly, the record company didn't make enough of them. Um, well, that's also maybe a good thing. There's, you know, a little scarcity is uh, not a bad thing. <laughs> scarcity, yeah, but uh, the scarcity was stupid. Um, but the record companies are not known for brands, usually. Uh, <laughs> Uh, however, we, you know, the good news is that we, you know, we were kind of uh, stopped from selling anything off our, off our, uh, through our birch store because of record store day. Um, so we have the clearance now and we held, we managed to steal a few, few copies oh, cool. that, that uh, we're going to go out at a reasonable price and screw those guys who are trying to get big dough on eBay for, for what they bought. So they're, they're, those are about to go on sale, plus a special limited edition stuff that'll be a lot more money, but the only signed numbered uh, stuff, that there'll be 30 of them, I think. You know? oh, wow. so, uh, so that's cool. That'll be fun. And to answer your question, it's a lot of work. I don't know if we could do it again. I, th I, thought, I, th I thought Never Surrender came out in 83, but maybe not. I mean, I could be wrong, right. but still, yeah. it's, I mean, there's yeah. Never Surrender. There's, it's coming up. It's not like yeah. it's, it's not like you have five years in between these albums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a matter of months or something. Yeah. <laughs> you asked me a question earlier, and I never really answered about moments that were, you talked about Us Festival being a defining moment and that kind of thing. Um uh, there was so many, each album had its own defining moments, you know, mm. each tour had its own defining moments. Like, for example, on the Allied Forces tour, uh, we co-headlined the Rose Bowl with Journey wow. in Anaheim, 110,000 people between, you know, and those were like, we were the hottest band in Los Angeles, the hottest band. And the radio stations there were like seven or eight tracks deep on the album. And it was there was a big controversy about it because everybody thought we were paying them off. Wow! <laughs> Which no, we would never do that. <laughs> no, not us. 
never heard of those kinds of things. But uh, it was huge. And that's where the that led to the S Festival being asked Wozniak to, to, to go play uh, the S Fest, which we shouldn't have done. You know, we should have played indoors. Uh, that should have been our next play, which was a toss up between playing lot three shows at Long Beach Arena or doing the S Festival. I think it worked and, out in the end. Uh, I think from a historical point of view, uh, how could you not play the S Festival? You look at the lineup you're yeah. going to be with. It's like you'll never see that lineup ever again. Like all the top grossing acts were there, plus a couple of new bands that nobody really heard of except LA people. Who became massive bands, right? Quite right. Became one of the first number one hard rock albums. You had Motley Crue. Yeah. I mean, you know, even the Scorpions at the time were big, but not, you know, it really is a crazy thing to, to look at that lineup and realize every single band went multiple times platinum and huge. It's also interesting too, when I think when you're talking about moments in time, uh, we'll end on this. Is when I think about the videos, I mean, and again, what, one of the videos that really pops into my mind is just one night because that was a, a really you know power ballady. You're moving into that world. There's a whole conversation potentially around power ballads and what that did to to the band and, and the genre. But the, the the visual need to really stylize beyond a live show and an album cover you really see the history of rock videos if you just watch the videography the videos of Triumph. It's amazing to see. Uh, yeah, it's really, it's really, um, uh, I threatened to go on strike when we did, weren't doing live videos anymore. Right. I went, I, I went, this is like horrible. It's like horrible. It's, it's, it makes no sense. Like, why would you make a film out of a song where we're making music in a theater of the mind? You don't want to have an image of whatever it might be when you listen to the song. All of a sudden MTV is ruling the world and, uh, you know, this is not for me. So I was always like, just tell me when to show up and I'll go through the motions, kind of. I was never a big fan of the video at all. Crazy time. Mike, okay. I can't thank you enough for this. It's been such a trip for me to just be able to connect and talk about the stuff and the fact that the band is still so active. And again, the fact that your Triumph Rock and Roll Machine documentary is now Allied Forces 40th anniversary. It's, ni it's just nice to see. It feels good to, to hear and see the band again. Well, cool. I appreciate that. Thanks for your time, Mike. All right, Mitch. Listen, it was it was fun. I had a good time, and uh, onwards. So we'll, maybe we'll hook up. It's taken us how many years to hook up now? Well, I guess we could go back <laughs> to 1985. <laughs>